Today is December 7th, 2020. A Michigan judge is allowing probes into the Dominion voting machines. A senatorial debate is held in Georgia leading up to the runoff in January. And protests erupt in France over a new security law. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. Let me tell you, let me tell you, we got a show for you today. We are moving and shaking. I mean, we got all the good stuff from the left, all the bad stuff from the left too. We also looking at all the good stuff on the right, even some of the bad stuff on the right. We are killing it. And guys, I'm serious when I say this weekend, we were working all weekend long trying to put together the best episode that we've done so far. And we are delivering on that episode right now. Welcome back to the show. If you are new, welcome for the first time. A little tidbit about what we like to do here. Our goal is to try and be as unifying as possible, knowing that we're all going to have our own opinions about politics and we're going to look at one side of the aisle and say we think that that's fair and look at one side of the aisle and think that's fair. And we're going to try our best to have a little community, have some civil discourse, and do our best to acknowledge the good and bad on both sides of the aisle in politics. Sometimes that can be hard, and right now with the landscape that we're in, I know it seems like everything's incredibly divided. But our goal here is to try our best to be level-headed, to be reasonable, and always to try and split the difference and find that truth right there in the middle. So with all of that having been said, if that's something that you're interested in, let's hop on in to our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, we are looking at a judge in Michigan that is allowing a probe into the Dominion voting machines. At this point, if you've been following all the politics, everything that's been going on, all the news, if you've been listening to anything that Donald Trump or a lot of the right side of the aisle has been talking about, you've probably heard something along the lines of the election was a total fraud. All of it can just be chalked up to Joe Biden and the Democrats just throwing everything into the wind. You know, all of these voting machines by Dominion were there, put in place purposefully to try and steal the election from Donald Trump. Right? That's all that Donald Trump has been pushing for the past couple of weeks. His lawyers with Rudy Giuliani and, and uh, Powell and all that have all been jumping up and down and saying that Dominion voting machines are compromised. And uh, th that's why Joe Biden actually, it looks like he won the election, but Donald Trump actually won the election. So most of this comes from a lot of pretty unverified claims that Dominion voting machines were used in Venezuela, that they were used by Chavez, that they were used by all these communist dictators, especially in Central and South America, in order to be able to overturn elections and make things unfair and basically get the outcome that whichever side had the most power uh, wanted, right? Um, not a lot of evidence that any of that actually happened. A lot of that seems pretty unfounded. Um, and a lot of the evidence that we're able to see about Dominion voting machines also has not been proven. Uh, I talked a little bit about last week, William Barr, um, the attorney general of the United of the DOJ came out uh, and was like, we're not able to find any evidence of widespread voter fraud. Uh, many Republicans, of course, also decry that as William Barr just doesn't like Donald Trump. So now not only as all the Democrats in against Donald Trump, but also a ton of the Republicans as well. You can't trust any of the Republicans because they've just been bought and sold by the large news media. It all relies on just this gigantic conspiracy theory that we will talk a little bit about here in a minute. But um, let's hop in and take a quick, take a quick look at a video um, done that kind of talks to a little bit of what this Dominion voting machine actually is all about. 
By now, you've probably heard the national rhetoric about Dominion voting systems. There's been no oversight of Dominion or its software. Claims that offer no proof and that the company categorically denies, even dedicating the main page of its website to debunking. The company says the allegations are so serious its employees are being harassed and tells Denver 7 there's been death threats and even a bounty on an employee. But with rhetoric roaring, a national story. There's just some reservations I had about the Dominion software in particular. Is now playing out on a local level. This this week, the Jefferson County GOP sent a letter to County Clerk George Stern asking for an audit for the 2018 and 2020 elections. So basically the idea here is Rudy Giuliani and a lot of other, you know, Trump's advocates and his lawyers and everything have been coming out and saying that a lot of fraud happened, right? We know that. We know that they've been saying that since the election. We know that they were preparing to say that before the election even happened, right? Um, they're claiming not only that there was fraud, but actually Trump won the election so that there were a, a lot of votes that were counted for Biden that shouldn't have been counted for Biden. Um, but the vast majority of their arguments so far from what I have been able to tell relies on a pretty loose set of now widespread conspiracy theories, much of that dependent upon the Dominion voting machines, okay? So now you have a Michigan judge that is allowing for a probe into Dominion voting machines within a specific county up in Michigan. Okay, nothing wrong with that. You can go in, you can probe. I think that's probably a good thing that, you know, you're able to go in and actually take a look through a lot of these voting machines. Um, but the interesting thing about all of this is that it's not really just the fringe Republicans that are on that are kind of buying into this conspiracy of really widespread election fraud. And this really, I think, goes into and is a huge account of like, how much our leaders actually do influence a lot of the stuff that we believe and how much our media influences the stuff that we believe. Um, so there are a lot of people that are much more moderate Republicans um, that are really starting to buy into this because of the amount of misinformation that is out, especially about around Dominion. Um, I've had multiple conversations with coworkers and with family and with friends. And even if people are like, well, I don't necessarily think that there is a lot of widespread election fraud. They are very, very, I guess, cautious about Dominion voting machines as a whole. And it's very easy because there's not a lot of good information out there about it to just hear that there's a lot of fraud happening and it's a result of these machines to be like, oh, well, those were tied to Venezuela. Those were tied to communist dictatorships. Like, well, maybe they, you know, things, you know, nefarious activity did happen. So before we can understand why the conspiracy theory I think is wrong and why it's very difficult for this to actually, that conspiracy theory to actually be true and the election to be thrown away from Donald Trump and towards Joe Biden. And then we have to understand a little bit of how voting and elections actually take place in the United States. So the first thing and the biggest thing is that voting is done on a county by county basis. Okay. Yes, there are certain laws that states can put in place that uh, try to maybe make things more efficient on a statewide level. Uh, things can happen at the state Supreme Court uh, that will, of course, trickle down and affect a lot of the counties. But how voting actually takes place, um, the poll workers that are there, how they're employed, how the votes are actually counted, and the systems that are used are all done on a strictly by a county-by-county count, county county basis, okay? This was done originally to be able to protect against fraud. That's one of the only reasons why it's there. If you have the entirety of elections that are run at maybe like the federal level and everything is completely the same for every single county, then it's much easier for you to commit fraud and much easier for you to swing elections one way or another. Um, so basically, because it's all county by county, if, that means that if you wanted to flip a presidential election, 
you would actually have to use such widespread and incredibly well-coordinated uh, disinformation and fraudulent activity uh, doing that it would be almost impossible, right? I mean, like we've got over, almost 3,100 counties in the United States, okay? That means that you would have to go through, and if you're in, you know, County A right here, they may be doing something completely different than County B just right beside them. So you'd have to go through and figure out how it is that County A is actually performing their elections, go in and mess their election process up, and then also do the exact same thing for County B, which may be completely different, and then mess the election up right there. So Obviously, they did this to make it very difficult for election fraud to happen uh, because everything is in, is incredibly spread out, right? It's it's not at one centralized point. It's very, very decentralized, our voting system is. This obviously causes problems in some way, but overall, it's a very, very beneficial thing. Um, so it's not impossible for widespread fraud to happen, just very improbable and incredibly difficult. So now let's just look into the counties in swing states that use Dominion voting machines. So not every county used a Dominion voting machine. In fact, less than half of the counties in all of, in the swing states. So there were uh, 731 counties between 10 uh, key swing states, uh, mainly all the states that Trump is arguing on right now. Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Those 10 states right there, there's 731 counties. Out of those 731 counties, only 351 of them used a Dominion voting machine, okay? So less than half used this specific type of voting machine that Trump is alleging was used in order to be able to flip the, the election away from him. So out of those 351 counties, or out of those 283 counties, uh, I'm sorry, out of the 351 counties, Trump won 283, okay? 81% of the total, Okay. He won 79% of the counties that didn't use Dominion voting machines. So he actually won more counties that used Dominion voting machines than he did the counties that, you know, didn't win, didn't use vote, Dominion voting machines. So in counties that used Dominion systems, Biden got 888,259 votes to Trump's 851,069 votes. So Trump lost the popular vote by, you know, around 30-something thousand votes, uh, which is not super surprising because Trump lost the popular vote in 2016. He was expected to lose the popular vote in 2020 as well. Um, and counties that didn't use Dominion voting systems, Biden got 1.54 million votes to Trump's 1.52 million. So there was very, very, very little difference between the counties that had Dominion or didn't have Dominion. If what Trump is alleging is true and that these Dominion voter systems were used very widespread in order to be able to flip all of these very, very crucial counties that Trump needed or to be able to flip the election towards Biden, then you would expect that Biden would have won a dramatically more amount of counties using the Dominion voting systems than Trump, right? Like you would expect all of the Dominion voting machine counties to be much, much more, I guess, towards Biden, right? And you don't see that, especially in the swing states. And those are obviously the most important states, right? So although I don't necessarily think that there was any like widespread fraud that took place, and I definitely don't think that Donald Trump won the election, right? And I think that him saying that all these Dominion voting machines, so far I've not been able to find any I guess, good or believable evidence that would convince me that these Dominion voting machines were actually going through 
and causing all this fraud or that people were able to flip votes back and forth. And I, I haven't been able to see any sufficient evidence of that yet, right? With all that having been said, I don't think it's a bad thing that a judge is allowing the GOP and Trump's legal team to go in and look and actually audit and verify and have a probe into the Dominion voting machines themselves. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. All right. That's why we have elections and that's why we have courts. We have courts sitting there so that if something fraudulent or if something bad happens, we have, you know, the ability to go in and kind of and probe it and see what's going on with it. At the end of the day, I think it's a good thing to have that accountability. It's a good thing to have that transparency. If they get in and they probe these voting machines and everything is, you know, off and everything is terrible and it looks like everything was flipped towards Biden, then it's going to call a lot of attention to it at a national level, especially. And you'll be able to start seeing more probes into other systems and, you know, other places around the country. And if that happens and a ton of fraudulent activity is uncovered, good. I'm glad that it was uncovered. If the election flips and that's exactly what should happen, then that's what's going to need to happen. Okay. If a lot of fraudulent activity happened. I don't see any evidence of that, though. And at this point, if they go in and probe the Dominion voting machines, they're not able to find any type of decent fraudulent voting or anything that happened, then it's just going to be back to square one for the Trump team, and it's going to be back to square one for the vast majority of the Republican Party that's actually buying into all this nonsense, and they'll end up going back to the drawing board on what to actually do. And at the end of the day, I think a lot of American people are going to start to look at it and be like, mm, this is not looking too convincing to me. So... um, if there happens to be fraud there and they actually do, quote, release the Kraken like his legal team has been saying that they're going to do, good. I hope that they uncover fraud if fraud is there. But if there's not fraud, they need to stop crying wolf. We need to go ahead and just move on with our lives and get ready for Biden to actually be inaugurated here within the next month or month and a half. So with all of that having been said, let's move on into our second story of the day, story number two. So for story number two, we are looking at the intense senatorial races that are gearing up in Georgia. These are two of, honestly, some of the biggest races in the country, um, especially because of the added emphasis of what happened on election night on November 3rd. So if you don't know what's going on, or maybe you haven't kept up with the senatorial race that's going on in Georgia right now, there is another a runoff election in Jan- on January 5th uh, to decide both of the senatorial seats in Georgia. Huge. Right now, the Republicans are holding uh, the Senate majority uh, for 50 to 48. Um, if the two seats in Georgia, which are currently held by Republicans, flip to Democrats, it will be a 50-50 tie in the Senate. And that will mean that Kamala Harris, as the vice president, will have the tie-breaking vote on anything that goes into Congress. Basically saying that the Democrats will now have control of both branches of the legislative branch and also the, the executive branch in the presidency as well, which would not be great. All right. I don't say that as in like, I don't think the Democrats deserve to be in power. I say that in the sense of any time that both branches of uh, Congress are taken by a party and the executive branch, it always makes me a little bit anxious or a little bit nervous. Made me feel the same way in 2016 as well, right? I don't think that one party should have control of all of the branches of government. It just kind of makes me a little uneasy. Um, but at any rate, um, I guess there, there's a lot of talk about this. I mean, I mean, news stations have been covering it all over the place because, I mean, it is huge, right? Like, people are dumping tons and tons of money into these races because a lot of people are, like, legitimately thinking that the entirety of the senatorial, you know, majority is going to hinge upon these two races. Um, and the Democrats know that if they seal it up, 
they're going to be able to go through and pretty much reverse anything and everything that Trump did over the past couple years and also get get put forward a lot of their more progressive agendas, right? If especially those in the House that are a bit more progressive and those in the Senate that are a bit more progressive, if they want to be able to get a lot of their more left-leaning agenda passed, they have to have the Senate. There's no way if they have Mitch McConnell as a House Majority Leader, basically running things in the Senate, there's no way that they're going to be able to get much of their progressive agenda passed. So they have to have that Senate. Um, but first, I guess we got to think about like how did this situation occur, right? So um, honestly, it is kind of somewhat confusing. So Georgia had two Republican senators in 2019, and I'll get, I guess, to why that's a little bit important. But they had David Perdue, who had his term end on this election, you know, November, November 3rd, 2020. That's when his term was up. And they also had Johnny Isaacson, who had his term ending in the midterm. So his term would have been up because the Senate, the senatorial seats are held for six years. His would have been up during the midterm. So January 3rd of 2023. Okay. So Isaacson resigned in 2019, and as a result, the Republican governor, uh, Brian Kemp, decided to um, go through and appoint Kelly Loeffler to fill his seat, okay? So uh, Kelly Loeffler is a Republican. She's been in the seat for about the past year, but because she was just appointed by the governor, she actually has to be voted upon in an election. Um, this would allow the citizens to officially actually vote her in uh, and keep her there until the end of Isaacson's term, which would be up in the beginning of 2023. So Georgia also has a very specific voting system that um, requires a runoff if nobody wins the majority of the vote. Okay, so we had two senatorial races in this past election on, on November 3rd. We had one between David Perdue and John Ossoff. Is that his name? Yeah, John Ossoff. Um, and then we had another one against Warnock and, and uh, Kelly Loeffler. So um, basically what ended up happening is nobody in the Purdue and Ossoff race won 50% of the vote or 50.1% of the vote. Uh, and it's the same with the other senatorial race as well. As a result, both of the races are now being pushed to January 5th where the people that won the most votes in each respective um, nomination or in each respective election, now those are the only two people on the ballot for that election. So Georgians will have to go back to the polls now and decide whether they want to put in the Republican Purdue or the Democrat um, Ossoff, or if they want to vote in the Republican Loeffler or the, or the Democrat uh, Warnock. So um, it's interesting because um, most, this is, this is pretty rare, right? Most of the time in Georgia, you don't see runoffs happen. And uh, it is kind of adding more suspense to what's going on with the elections right now because a lot of people are looking at it and they're like, a lot hinges on this. So, I mean, when I say a ton of money is being dumped into these races, I mean a ton. The vast majority of the arguments from the Republicans against the Democrats have been a lot of the same kind of lines of arguments that have been argued by Republicans for the past couple months now, uh, really over the past year to year and a half, is that, well, both of these people are extremely progressive. These people are socialists, they're communists, they're wanting to institute uh, the same stuff that happened in Venezuela. They want to do the exact same things here. Um, they are totally bought on, bought into the far, far left gender identity and gender, gender theories. They want to completely abolish the police. Basically, the key, what the Republicans are doing now is they're saying that the entirety of the agenda from the far left side of the aisle is actually the, the agenda of all Democrats, right? 
while the the thing for the Democrats or the argument against the Republicans is now, well, these Republicans are just extremely corrupt. The only thing that they care about is big businesses and corporations. They don't care about the little man. They don't care about the everyday worker. They just care about themselves. And uh, a lot of the Democrats have been pushing a ton of ads against Purdue and Loeffler who sold off a whole bunch of stock and bought a whole bunch of stocks because they were in on the meetings early on in the coronavirus in the Senate meetings and stuff and supposedly had a lot of insider trading knowledge and were able to make a whole lot of money and all kinds of stuff. So the Democrats are basically just saying that the Republicans are super corrupt. Um, I think that both of those things probably have maybe an inkling of truth, but both of them are probably very far off. I don't think from any of the stuff that I've read about John Ossoff or Warnock that uh, either of them are extremely far left progressive Democrats, especially seeing as how they're running in Georgia, which is not an incredibly far left progressive state. This is like the first time it is voted blue in decades. Um, and I also don't think that both David Perdue and Kelly Loeffler are these horrible, incredibly corrupt Washington people that are just up there trying to make big money off of businesses and, you know, help out large corporations. All right. I think there's a middle ground between the two as there normally is. I'm sure that Loeffler and Purdue probably did make some trades that they maybe should not have made because of insider information that they had, but they obviously would have had to have been very good at the insider trading that they did because that's extremely illegal and they definitely would have gotten fried for it in the Senate. Either way, a lot of money is being dumped into these uh, elections that's coming up here in the next month. Definitely need to keep an eye on these elections because it's going to make a big difference in the layout of the Senate and obviously then of the laws that are going to be made over the next uh, two to four years. So with all that having been said, let's move on in now to our last story of the day, story number three. Now for our third story of the day. So for our third story, it's actually around a story that is not happening in America right now. So um, France went through and implemented some very stringent and also new security laws that sparked a large uprising of protests in Paris and across France. So probably one of the more restrictive, uh, in terms of privacy, restrictive against privacy and uh, I guess the liberty of a lot of its citizens, one of the more stringent security laws uh, in a in a first world country or in a developed country uh, right now. So over 46,000 people took to the streets in protests um, for the bill being passed. Uh, the bill is heavily, heavily supported by uh, Macron, who is the president in France. Uh, many human rights groups across France, though, have decried it as a huge step backwards in terms of restricting its citizens. Um, a lot of the opposition, I think, is uh, very, very worried about uh, giving the government more power and allowing the government to be able to dictate uh, a lot of the things that citizens can and can't do, right? So, uh, the first the first bit is around two articles. So Article 21 and 22, basically within this uh, within the security law, propose a quote global security law. Okay, this would allow the police and the French paramilitary group to use body cameras and drones to film citizens and allow the recorded footage to be live streamed back to the command post. Okay. This could be done in a very widespread fashion. It doesn't necessarily outline the use case for it, so it presumably could be done at any time for any reason, and the police would be able to do it whenever they want. Uh, the idea behind 
why they would need this is so that uh, the police officers could be better protected. And of course, it's to be able to protect the citizens. In order to be able to protect the citizens well, you have to be able to video them at all times in order to be able to keep them nice and secure and safe from any type of threat. Uh, you'll have a video camera on all your people, so that way you'll know if anything's going wrong, right? A little bit of sarcasm in my voice there. So the second big thing, the problem that a lot of the opposition has is around Article 24, which actually penalizes people for videoing or taking pictures of French police or paramilitary group. This is when it gets interesting. So the main penalty occurs if a photo or a video is posted anywhere on the internet and is used with the intent to harm, quote unquote, police officers in any way. Okay. Big argument against is that uh, basically the phrasing within the law is extremely open-ended and loose and thus could be used in a court of law to be able to attack, degrade, and tear down citizens in any way that they kind of please. Um, obviously, a lot of people are upset about this because they're saying that it could cause huge problems uh, with being able to hold police accountable in times where the police are actually brutalizing citizens or you know abusing their power in any way. You'll notice that a lot of these discussions are a lot of the same discussions that we're having in the United States as well. So the reason why I am talking about this right now is because I think that this is a conversation that is happening at a world stage that is very, very important and needs to be had. And it's happening in all of the developed countries, right? So proponents of this law are looking at it and seeing it as a very good thing. And the more conservative side, right-wing side of uh, the, poli uh, the political parties there in France are the ones that are mainly supporting this because they're seeing it as a very good thing. They want the government to step in and actually protect its people. Um, a lot of this is being, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but a lot of this is being done in the wake of pretty horrific events that have happened. And so they are wanting the government to step in and protect its citizens. So, French police also, they've had a lot of problems with the French police brutalizing and doing things to its citizens that definitely should not be done. Um, and a lot of activists are worried that this is going to get in the way of being able to hold those police officers accountable in any real and tangible way. So um, I think this story is incredibly important to us here in America because it highlights a lot of how other countries in the West are struggling to implement safety measures while at the same time not restricting freedoms of its citizenry. Most all of the developed countries in the world are really grappling with what the government's role should be in this new era of technology where everything can be filmed and spread so quickly. It is a very, very tough line to walk between transparency and unfair internet mob culture that will quickly attack things based upon little to no evidence, right? So you have on this one hand that you want police to be held accountable. You need for them to be videoed. You want for them to be able to do their job well, but also do their job correctly, right? And one of the best ways to be able to hold people accountable is to get them on video doing their job right or get them on video doing their job wrong, right? Video evidence oftentimes is very indisputable. It's easy to see when things go awry. While at the same time, we have an internet mob culture on our hands in the entirety of the developed world where a very, very small snippet, an out-of-context video can be circulated very, very rapidly around the to the far, far reaches of the internet, causing rapid outrage and a mob that works to cancel whatever it is that they think that they don't like and whatever it is that they think that they're seeing in the video, right? 
You see this all the time nowadays. And it's a large part of why, you know, a lot of the right wing of the United States, uh, more conservatives, are infuriated by this whole cancel culture and, you know, internet Twitter mob. They hate it because they're like, you don't even wait for evidence to come out, right? Like, it doesn't matter if there's evidence at all. We have this small out-of-context snippet, and we should absolutely roast you as a result of it. So um, the interesting thing here is that in pretty much all of the modern large power grabs that we've seen by governments. It's done in the wake of some incredibly tragic event. I talked a little bit about that earlier in France, but right now the horrible tragic events are happening after there was a beheading of a school teacher earlier this year, and there was also a stabbing that took place in Nice uh, that was awful and bloody and terrible, and a lot of people are incredibly worried about terrorist attacks in France. You saw the exact same thing take place in the United States in the early 2000s, in the wake of 9-11, they came out with the Patriot Act, the Patriot Act, which took away and limited a lot of the freedoms of the United States uh, citizens in terms of privacy and what the government could and couldn't do in order to be able to, quote, protect its citizens. So the real dichotomy here is between the citizens' liberty and privacy and their safety, okay? And in many countries, this, this debate is absolutely raging because of how much responsibility um, they believe that the government should have to provide for the safety of its citizens. Unfortunately, in order to protect its citizens, a government has to have power and control, right? There's no way that it can actively protect its citizens unless it has the power and the means by which to protect that citizenry. But power and control by the government means that power and control has to be taken from the citizens. Somebody has to have the power there. It's very, very difficult to have the perfect mix. And whenever gov you know, the government actually reaches in and takes power away from the citizens, it is extremely difficult to be able to get that power back into the hands of the people. So the real questions here, and I don't have all the answers to these questions, but I maybe just want to pose it to our American audience because this is not something that's just happening in France, right? The questions are, how much are you willing in order to give up or how much are you willing to give up in order to feel protected by the government? Are you willing to give up more money in taxes? Are you willing to be constantly surveilled? Are you willing to allow the government to have access to your transaction history and what you're buying and where you're going? Are you willing to have the government tell you where is and isn't safe for you to go, uh, where you should live, uh, who you should be in contact with? And I know a lot of those questions seem very ethereal. They may seem uh, very uh, like, oh, those aren't real questions that we need to be answering right now, but they are, right? These are all questions that are going to continue to become more and more and more important as technology continues to get better and the governments have the means by which to actually surveil every single person, right? They have the means by which to actually look at all the transactions of every single person within a country. They actually have the means by which to track every single place that you go. Before now, that couldn't happen because the technology just wasn't there. So the question is, do we as citizens, are we okay with the government doing that if it means that we may be more protected from foreign threats? And that is a very difficult question to ask. The next question also is, is along the lines of, does giving the government more power actually ensure your safety? There's many people that argue that the Patriot Act didn't work. All of the government stepping in and taking away the privacy of its citizens didn't actually stop any more terrorist attacks. So we'll have to see all of this starts to play out 
over the next couple of years. We'll have to see if that security law actually stays in Paris or actually gets voted in and it you know actually passes through all the different legislatures. I believe that there's another vote on it early next week. Uh, by the more conservative side of the um, French political class. So it's looking like it's going to pass and it's looking like a lot of citizens are pretty upset about it. And I you know, tend to understand why they're outraged and why they're upset is actually there. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see how all of it plays out. So with all of that, that's the end of our story number three. Let's hop on into our last segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile over this past weekend was not having the coronavirus. So <laughs> that may sound very out of contact, but my wife and I were worried that we came into contact with somebody that had tested positive for coronavirus. So all last week we decided to quarantine and follow the CDC guidelines around what we should and shouldn't do, which was basically not leaving our house at all, um, which was boring, but it's okay. It's worth it. And we ended up getting negative test results back, and that felt very good. It was our first time ever kind of being in the situation where we had to quarantine, where we were actually going and getting tested. Like, we hadn't had a need to get tested so far because we've actually kind of, for the most part, stayed to ourselves and a small group of friends over the past year so that we didn't have any opportunity to run into coronavirus. But we ended up, you know, getting in a situation where we thought there was somebody that did test positive, so we wanted to be extra safe, extra cautious. Fortunately, we did not end up getting it or contracting it so far that we know of, um, and that was definitely a huge relief. Uh, relief. So if you or anybody that you know does have coronavirus, definitely stay quarantined as much as you possibly can, as difficult as it may be. It's worth it. I mean, especially with the amount that the cases are going up across the United States right now. Definitely don't want to be getting it or giving it to anybody in and around this holiday season. So with all of that being said, that is the end of our show. Thank you for stopping in and joining with us today. I hope that you enjoyed it. Share us around to all your friends, all your family. Tell everybody that you know if you love the show because that's how we grow and that's how we get more followers and that's how, you know, I guess I can gauge whether or not this is something that people actually enjoy. So <laughs> follow me on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast with one T. I'm on Facebook at Split the Difference. I'm on YouTube at Split the Difference. I have my, web, my website, splitthedifference.com. Go there, find me in all the different places, give me a like, a subscribe, give me a good review. All of that stuff helps so much. So thank you for stopping by and listening in. Always remember, we're going to do our best to keep a level head, to stay reasonable, and to always split the difference. This is Austin Taylor. <laughs>